Go ahead and open your Bible to the book of John. We're going to be continuing our series in the Gospel of John. We'll be in chapter 2 this morning. You have the passage in your handout as well, but go ahead and open your Bible there. Now, as we start, I want to talk about three different uh, stories or three different things that I've observed, some of them in the past, some of them more recently. The first was the story of something that happened at my home church in Brazil. And there was this young man who had a wife and a a young baby. And in his youth, in his younger days, he had gotten involved in drug trafficking. And he had been selling drugs, and he got caught. And the day before he was going to, and he went to prison, but in prison... We had a ministry at our church down there. This man uh, came to know Christ and gave his life to Christ and actually had a passion to then go into ministry. Now, in that story, there was a beautiful testimony of the worship that was happening in my home church, the witness that was happening to those who were lost. But in contrast to that story, there was also a tragedy. See, this young man's mother went to a church in Brazil that preached a prosperity gospel. A gospel that was all about money and that you could make God do things for you. And so when her son was captured, when when they took him into custody... The day before, I believe this is, the, this is how it happened, it was the timeline, that she went to her church and, and was praying, and what the pastor there said is, you know what you need to do? You need to bring this large sum of money to the church. And if you give that money to God, or rather to their church, then God is going to keep your son from being convicted. So she gave thousands of Brazilian dollars, a large sum of money, and the next day he was convicted to two years in prison. What that church did to that young man's mother is that she has claimed that she will never step foot in another evangelical church the rest of her life. The other thing that I saw this week, I was in my office and I was hearing uh, Pastor Billy watch a video and I was curious, so I went and watched it. And what he was watching was a guy that had filmed a church business meeting and was making comments on it, but this business meeting had descended into chaos. People were yelling at each other. The tragedy, though, was that this service they actually did the business meeting in place of the morning worship service so there were probably visitors in attendance can you imagine the witness that was there for those people who were there the tragedy that they distracted that they distorted what was meant to be a service of worship, a service of witness, but because of these other things, this dissension and division that entered, it became something else. The other thing that I've been seeing this week as I've talked to uh, some people that we have a mutual friend who has gone into this path of deconstruction, who has turned away 
from the faith. And on Facebook is regularly making these posts that are just tearing down the church while claiming to still be a believer, but throwing out everything that we see and hold dear in the Word of God. Now, these things are egregious. These things ought not to be because they are distractions and distortions of the true purpose that we have. Now, when we look at those stories, the temptation is to think, well, yeah, I can see how bad that is, but that's not us. And it's true. If we go in comparison of degrees, that has not been the story of this church. But as we go through this passage today, I I really want to call all of us to a moment of self-evaluation where we look at ourselves personally as well as congregationally and we ask the question, are we as a body, are we as individuals pushing people towards Christ or away from Christ? Is God using us to draw people to him Or are we distractions and distortions and we are actually serving to push people from him? The big idea is this. Beware the distortions and distractions that destroy our witness and worship of Christ. Beware. Watch out. Beware the distortions and distractions that destroy our witness and worship of Christ. Let's read our passage starting in verse 12 of John chapter 2. After this, he went down to Capernaum. This is uh, Jesus. He went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting, sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, as we are having this preaching moment, um, I'm just going to do a one quick Aside in that, we, I as a pastor, am called to preach the word. And my goal in that, there's a part of that, is to warn everyone, teach everyone, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And we usually see that every week, that as we go into the word of God, we're looking and seeing, how does this passage apply to me? But the other side of that is I also am called to equip the saints, Hopefully, each week we're not just taking small lessons of like, okay, this is what I need to do this week, but we're also seeing principles of Bible study. How do we learn what the Word of God truly says? 
Now, last week, we talked about, we had that moment where we said, look, when you're reading the Word of God, you need to be careful before you start pulling out all of these hidden meaning in the text. You need to go through a process. You need to do due diligence in studying the Word of God. This week, I want to talk about application. That there is a process before you jump into application. Uh, The leadership here at the church had the uh, blessing and opportunity, several of the leaders, to be part of a program called Word Partners. And in Word Partners, we studied through an entire book of the Bible with other pastors. But as we were going, we learned different principles, different things that just to remind us of the process. One of those things was called Traveling Instructions. And what they meant by traveling instructions is how do we get from the text to application? That there's a process in doing that. And the process is you start with the Word of God. Then you, so what does the Word actually say? Then you go to what did it mean then? What did it mean to the people who received that Word first? Before you get to what does it mean to us. Now, if we do a different process in that, then you're going to have problems. For example, if instead of going to the Word of God and opening the Word of God and saying, what does the Word of God say first, but rather thinking, okay, this is what I want the Word of God to say, and I'm going to then look for the Bible to prove my point— it's the difference, if you theologically, of exegesis, taking something out of the Word, versus eisegesis, reading into it. Well, if we came to our passage and we read into it, let's imagine, um, my wife and I, we have chickens at home. And let's say that we're going to start raising a lot more chickens. And we, we want to raise them up to be able to sell them. But we need a place to sell them. And, and so I think, you know what? What if we did a farmer's market at church? This could be perfect. So I, but I need, I need, you know, to talk to the leadership. And so I go to the deacon meeting and I say, hey, guys, I have an idea. If you would open up to John 2.14, I'm just going to read a passage to you. It says, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. Guys, we need to do a farmer's market. It says so right there. In the temple, they were selling things. We're not doing that. We need to start. What's the problem? That's not what this passage is about. But if I'm reading into it, if I already know what I want it to say, and then I go to it, that's going to be a problem. First, we need to see what does it actually say. Because if we look at the context, that's clearly not the meaning there. The other problem, though, is when we skip that middle step, where we go from the Word of God directly to us. We don't go through the process of understanding what's happening there. Let's imagine what that would look like in this passage again. For example, we could take this application. If an animal shows up at the church, you're supposed to make a whip and run it out of here. That's what it says, right? Like he he made a whip and he drove out the animals. So that's what we need to do. Or we could, after we've spent all of this money on the roof and we're looking to redo the carpet, you know what? I don't think we should. Because Jesus says, destroy the temple, and he's going to rebuild it. So we're just wasting time and money because he could do it in three days. So what we really need to do is we need to light a match, burn the thing down, and then by next Sunday, we're going to have something even better. Is that what it's saying? No. 
But if we skip the process of understanding what it says to them, then we're going to misapply. When you go from your application to the text, you misinterpret. When you go from the text straight to you, then you misapply it. So now the reason I say all of that is because in our passage, we are going to do those traveling instructions because it's talking about a temple. It's talking about a reality that we do not have, and yet there are principles here that still apply to us. That we're going to go through this and see that there are still things for us to understand. But first, we're going to see what it means for them. So let's look at the first verses and understand the setting of our passage. Starts in verse 12 that after this, this is after he had done the miracle, his first sign um, of turning the water to wine. After that, he went to Capernaum. This verse 12 is really a verse of transition. Um, In that verse, he's going to Capernaum. Capernaum really becomes a home base for Jesus. And he stays there for a time before he goes to Jerusalem. In verse 13, we really see the setting, though, for our passage. And it starts with the Passover. Last week, the big event was a wedding. This week, the big event is Passover. Now, Passover was the time in which Israel as a nation, as a people, they celebrated God's deliverance out of their captivity in Egypt. That God saw their captivity and he delivered them. He brought them out and he said, remember what I have done celebrate it. Have this time of Passover. And it was something they did every single year. Now, what's really cool is that in the Gospel of John, the author John brings up the idea of Passover more than any of the other Gospels. John has at least three different Passovers within the Gospel. Possibly there's an allusion to a fourth. But multiple times, John brings up the idea of Passover. Now, part of that is because John is an eyewitness. He's giving details. Part of it is is just as a time element for us to understand as things are happening. But there's something more that John is doing in keeping on bringing up the Passover. Because the other thing that John does that's different from the other authors is that John brings up what John the Baptist said. We've already seen that two times John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God of God. Now, what lamb of God was this? It was the sacrificial lamb. It was the Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says that Christ was our sacrificial Passover lamb. And so what John is doing is there's an element of foreshadowing. Every time he brings up this Passover, he's kind of alluding to something, that something's coming. Until we reach the final Passover in the gospel, where truly the sacrificial lamb is offered for the sins of the world. So the setting, what we have, the event is then we have this Passover that's happening. Now the location is in Jerusalem. It's the capital. But specifically, Jesus is going to be in the temple. Now as we're doing these traveling instructions, as we're trying to understand, we need to understand what the temple is. Was How does it fit into this story of redemption? Well, let's, let's zoom out then. When we think about the very beginning of the book, the very beginning, not of John, but of the, of the Bible, 
In the Garden of Eden, humanity was created in community with God. God's presence was with mankind. The problem was that sin entered the world, and because, as we sang earlier, God's holiness, because he is holy, that presence was removed from humanity. We were condemned to be eternally separated from God. That was what, that we were doomed to that. But in that moment, God gave a promise. That presence that had been removed, that blessing that they could no longer have, God was going to give a way for that to come back. And so what we have in the Old Testament is that promise being fleshed out of God explaining more and more, giving more and more clues. How is this going to work? How are we who are sinners, how are we who are no longer holy, we who are separated from God, how will God's presence be brought back? Now there's an element of that that we see then in Exodus through the tabernacle where God says there is a way that my presence can still be here, can be known in a special way. And so he tells them, do these things. He gives them the law. He gives them the tabernacle. Later, King Solomon is going to make the temple. Again, the temple is a special place of God's presence. The temple was the place of worship, where the Jewish people were to come before God, where they were to sacrifice, where they were to pray, where they were to worship God, where his presence was made manifest. Now that's the element that we usually think about when we think about the temple, that we think of it as a place of worship. But beyond just a place of worship, it's also a place of witness. In 1 Kings, Solomon has finished building the temple. They've brought the Ark of the Covenant, and Solomon has a prayer of dedication. And he talks about that worship element, that God's presence, that he is dwelling here, that we will pray towards this place. But he also brings out the importance that this place was also meant to be a witness. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41, this is what it says. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, all ideas of witness, when he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. The temple was not just meant for a place of worship just for the Jews. It was meant to be a witness. How great is your name? A place where they could come. Within the temple, we see God's presence in a special way. And the purpose is to be a place of worship and of witness. Now, let's go on and look at our passage and see what the problem is. Now that we understand what's, what the purpose is, let's look and see the problem. In the temple, he, being Jesus, found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. 
Jesus arrives at the temple, but instead of finding worship, instead of finding witness, he finds a market. Instead of doing what they were called to do, they have brought in other things that are a distraction, that are a distortion of what God has asked them to do. Now, there's an element here where what is being offered isn't in of itself a bad thing. During the Passover, many people across the entire nation are traveling to Jerusalem. And even Gentiles might be traveling to the temple. Now, when they come to the temple, there are different sacrifices that they're meant to do. Now, if you've ever traveled, if you're ever going on a plane and you're going to spend a week on vacation, many of us don't take all of the things. We wait until we get there to buy what we need. You wait until you're there, and then you go out, you go to the grocery store, you buy all the things that you're going to need, and that's what you do. And it just makes the journey easier. Now, that's in modern times. Imagine back in the day, you're going to be walking all the way to Jerusalem, and now, and you have your kids, and you're watching all of those, but now you also have to drag a cow, you have to bring this sheep, you have to do those things, and it's not like loading it in a semi-truck and putting it in the back of the trailer. No, you're literally having to drag this animal. So what many people would do is they would go to Jerusalem without bringing the animal, and they would buy the sacrifice there. It even helped in the sense because if on the journey an injury happened to your animal, that animal was no longer worthy as a sacrifice. And so what they would do is they would wait to get to the place. The other element that they would do in the temple, and we see in the money changers, is that in the temple only a certain denomination, only a certain type of money was allowed to be used as the temple tax as well as gift offerings. So in this place, you have people who are offering this service. On the surface level, that can seem okay. But it's not. Because the problem is that they, in doing something that they are seeing is good, they are taking away from the main thing. They're trying to offer a solution, but they're truly distracting. Now, that's if their motivations are in the right place. Even in the motivations in the right place, they're trying to do a good thing. But when the good thing takes the place of the main thing, it's a bad thing. When a good thing takes the place of the main thing, it's a bad thing. Before we, uh, Dr. Sayer talked about the example of Martha. Martha was doing a good thing, but it took the place of the main thing, and therefore it was a bad thing. So even if their motivations were right, it's a distraction. People are coming in to worship, to witness. And what are they hearing? All of these other things. They're hearing haggling. They're seeing all of this other stuff. But on the other side, it's also, though, a distortion. Because as we see, there's other accounts of Jesus cleaning out the temple. This is at the beginning of his ministry, but in the other Gospels, we see an account at the end of his ministry where he cleans out the temple again. And what he says there is that you are a den of robbers. Part of the problem was, yeah, we're offering a service, but we need to take our cut of this. 
We, we need to, to make it worth our time and our effort to do these things. Now, is it a problem to be paid for your services? No. But that's not exactly what was happening here. They were distorting. Instead of a house of worship, we're going to see later, it becomes a house of trade. Instead of being a place that's a witness, it's a distraction. Imagine that you have gone on this long journey... You have the money that, you're, that works where you're from, and you come to this place. You're wanting to buy a sacrifice, and first you have to exchange the money. But the exchange rate is pretty inflated, so you're already a little upset about that. Then you go to buy your sacrifice, and the price is like double what it would have been at home. At that moment, do you think that that person is ready to worship? Man, that guy, he, he cheated me. They're not in a place of worship. When they're coming to offer their prayers and they're hearing this guy, and I'll give you 10, no, 15, 10, 15, and they're hearing all those things, it's distracting them. One of the principles that we see is that the love of money always distorts our witness. When these people put this other thing first, it takes away from what's happening. So even though they were trying, maybe even doing something that was on the surface level good, they had made a lesser thing the main thing. So now that we've seen the setting and the problem, I want us to consider our own lives. Let's go through some of that traveling instruction as we take what we've seen so far and then attempt to apply it to our own lives. Because remember, this principle of beware the distortions and distractions that destroy our witness and worship. We've already looked at the temple and seen that the purpose of the temple is that the temple was a place of special presence of God and that in the temple they were called to worship and bear witness to him. Now it's true, we don't have the temple of Jerusalem. Are we meant to? Is this passage saying that we're supposed to go to Jerusalem once a year and worship there? No. But do we have a special presence of God that comes with a purpose? We do. 1 Corinthians 3, 16-17 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. In this period of transition within the Gospels between the Old Testament to the New Testament, What God gives us is his special presence in each of our lives through Christ. We are given a privilege that in Old Testament is something they couldn't even dream of. That God could be with us, in us. But in that great privilege, we still bear a responsibility. We are called to worship and bear witness. A few weeks ago, we talked about disciples and how the disciples are uh, the role of a disciple is to know God and make Him known. That's our purpose. 
So the question then for all of us here is in what ways are distractions entering our lives that are taking us away from that purpose? What things are we allowing to enter our lives that are a distortion? The other way that this, these verses apply, though, is in the body of Christ. In Ephesians 2, 19-22, it says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together with a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, we see this special presence of God that comes with a purpose. The purpose of us as a body, as we come together, is to worship and bear witness. Now, I want to go into just very practical application here and try to start thinking of ways that we don't do that, in ways that we allow distractions and distortions to set in. The obvious one is looking at this passage of these other things, of this love of money that comes into the way. That story of, of my friend from Brazil, that the money that had seeped in and then had completely ruined their opportunity to bear witness to that man's mom. That happens all the time. There's a reason that the th three of the main passages that talk about the roles and responsibilities of pastors mention money. In Timothy, and, and Titus, and then in First Peter, all of them have warnings about the love of money, about shameful gain, about deceitful gain. And it says that that should not be seen in the leaders of a church. Now, we are not going to exhaust the list in which ways we can be distractions or we can distort these things. This really re is going to require self-evaluation, but I, I want to prime the pump in some of those ways. Distractions don't need to be bad things. Distractions are often good things that have taken the place of the main thing, and that's the bad thing. Think about your own life. Distractions like work, not saying to quit your job. But when the work becomes the main thing, that's bad. Being busy, filling your schedule. Should we redeem the days? Should we spend time? Should we be active? Yes. But when we just add busyness so that we cannot be, respond to callings from God, that's wrong. Hobbies. Can we enjoy the blessings that God gives? Yes. But when those hobbies become your passion, become your purpose, it's wrong. Pursuit of the American dream. Building your own kingdom. Man, that is one that I am always tempted to fall in, where I'm thinking about my house and additions that I want to do and how I'm going to change my property and to make it my, my own little kingdom. It's a distraction. Entertainment, technology, all these things that can be good things but can distract us from our main purpose to worship and bear witness. There's also the danger, personally, of distortions. One, of, the, one of, of Satan's main methods, main strategies, is to distort the good things that God has made. 
to, to twist them. That's sin. When we allow things to enter our lives that are a distortion of what God has called us to do. All of us have allowed these things to enter our lives and distort our purpose. But, and if that sin goes unaddressed, it will destroy our worship and witness. We need to deal with those things. As individuals, you personally are the temple of the Lord. You have these responsibilities. But congregationally, where are areas that we as a congregation have allowed distractions or distortions to enter? The first one, I'm, I'm going to start by pointing the finger, finger at myself. I was talking to uh, the deacons about an element of this, and um, John Ritchie brought this element up, and, um, and it, was, it was a good wake-up call, because I was seeing the issue as other people, and he kind of saw the issue as me. Um, but, sorry, one of the things that I find that might lead to a distraction from worship in our time that we gather is how crazy I am right before the service starts. I'm running and I'm trying to make sure that I've printed off my, my message. I'm wanting to make sure that things in the sound booth are right. I come up here, I do my music, all of these things, and I'm running around like crazy, and it's a distraction. It, it, it gives anxiety to some people watching me. I'm anxious. Now, I start there because I think that part of the problem of that distraction has led to another distraction for the rest of us which is the distraction of showing up on time. Let me, let me give some qualifiers here. I'm not going to legalism. This isn't about, oh, you must be here at this time. Um, I'm not singling anyone else out. If you happen to show up late today, I didn't know. I'm not, I don't remember. Um, but that can be a distraction. A couple weeks ago, uh, several times, we've had times where we're leading worship uh, or doing the, the rehearsal before, and several times we've had visitors arrive at the church, and usually I'm, I'm playing guitar, and I'll look over at Hannah, and I'm like, hey, can you go, uh, you know, greet them, because no one's here, and they go out and talk to them, and you, like, the first question is like, hey, is the time on the sign right? Are, like, are things wrong? A lot, sometimes we have uh, visitors tend to always show up a little bit early, and it can be a distraction when the rest of us are showing up 5, 10, 15 minutes into the service. It also can be a distraction to those who are already trying to set aside time and focus on those things. Now, please understand me. Things happen. I'm not, I'm not saying that, oh, you know what, hey, if you're going to be here two minutes late, don't even show up at all. Please, I'm not saying that. I would, if you're going to only be here for the last five minutes of the service, I'd still like that. Come, be with us. It's more than just the service, the time of community. But we need to think through these elements. Are we being distractions to what's happening? Apathy. Where we're not being intentional. We're not passionate about our purpose. We just don't care. You know, things just go unnoticed. Man, I do this all the time. Like, I... I, I I'm running around moving things in the building and I just put something down and I forget about it and it just, it doesn't look like things are ready. And it can be a distraction. You know, in the way that we volunteer, are we being intentional? In the way that we participate with the singing, with hearing God's word, the announcements, are we being intentional in those moments? The way that we steward our building. Now, 
This passage is not talking about the physical location. When we're talking about the church, we're not talking about this building. We're talking about God's people. But that element of stewardship is important. So all of these things that we need to really think about, what about distortions that enter? Things that God has given for a purpose, but that we twist them into something else. Things like instead of being a community, we're a bunch of individuals. Instead of sharing our burdens, we spread the failures of others through gossip. Instead of being generous, that we're greedy. Instead of a united body, there's dissent and division. Instead of submission, there could be rebellion. Instead of humility, there could be pride. Instead of joyful service, there could be grumbling legalism. All of these things can be distortions for what God has called us to, and they detract from our worship and witness. But let's look at see what Jesus does. Let's look at the reaction to how Jesus deals with this. Verse 14. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, Jesus has a strong reaction here. This is way different than the Jesus that we saw last week, of the Jesus who's taking water to wine. That's what it seems like, but it's not. Does Jesus bring grace? He absolutely does. But Jesus also brings judgment. Jesus sees that the purpose, that they are not doing those things. So what does he do? He drives out the distraction. He pushes it out. Then he gives an admonish. uh, He admonishes those who are making the, the cell. And what does he tell them? Don't make my father's house a house of trade. Don't distort what this is meant to be. Now we often, so often, churches fall into this. We do these good things, but then we let them become the main thing, and it's a distortion. Think about it. Churches who say, well, we are a house of healing. Our main purpose is to be a place of healing for our community. So if you have troubles, come here because that's what we want to do. We want to help your problems. We want to do those things. Is that a good thing? Yes, but it's not the main thing. We're a house of music. Everything we do here is about having quality music. We're going to put on a show for you. That, that's what we want to do. Is it good to have good music? Yes. Is that the main thing? No. We're a house of events and programs. We're a house of fellowship and community. We're a house of luxury. We have a beautiful building. We're a house of theology. It's all about information. No. We are a house of worship. We are a house of witness. That's what we are called to be. We must not let things enter that distort those things. So we look and see what Jesus does. Jesus removes, he drives out the distraction. In our lives, we need to deal with the distractions. We need to remove them. We need to take, we need to admonish the distortions. Last week we had four different people who became members of our church. As a church, we are called to witness 
Christ. We are called to proclaim Christ. Well, if a member no longer is bearing witness to Christ, if they are no longer demonstrating that evidence, then we need to remove them. We need to admonish them. That is the responsibility that we have because of the purpose. But what is the motivation in all of this? Look at verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was passionate about the purpose. His zeal consumed him. That's what he really wanted. And so he was passionate about that. That's what we need. Now, we're not talking about the building. So often people take these these verses and think that we're just talking about this structure. That's not the case. When we see people running, hey, no, 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 this is the house of God. No. It's the people. It's the body of Christ. Should we be respectful? Should there be an element of stewardship in the same sense that I wouldn't, if I had older people at my house, I'm telling my kids to stop running around. I don't want them bumping into them. That's just a matter of common sense. But it's not a matter of zeal for the house of the Lord. The zeal is the body of Christ. When we see distortions and distractions, we need to call those out to be bold in our confrontation, to drive them out. Truly, we must beware the distortions and distractions that destroy our witness and worship. Now, the underlying foundation for all of this, though, why do we do this is because of what happens in the next paragraph. See, our transformation, because Christ is calling us to be transformed here, to lay aside our personal desires and to do his purpose. Why do we do those things? What, what gives God the right? What is the theology under there? Well, it's what happens in the next passage. The Jews ask him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What right do you have in making these changes? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews are asking for proof. Give us proof about what you're doing. They are requiring that. Who gives you the right to change how we do things in this temple? And Jesus gives them proof. He reveals the truth. Jesus tells them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now he's not telling them. It's not a command in the sense of like, hey, start tearing this down. It's a prophecy. What you're doing, the actions that you are taking, the direction you are going, is going to destroy not only the physical temple around them, but his temple. Because what it says then is that it's the the temple of his body. But the Jews don't understand because they're looking and all they can think of is the physical temple. And they say, are you going to do this? Something that took 46 years to get to this point and you're going to do it in three days? They don't receive the the, the proof. They deny it. They refuse it. But John explains to us what this proof truly was. He was speaking about the temple of his body. And when, therefore, he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. In the book of John, the first half of the book, we have seven different signs, seven different things that bear evidence to Christ. 
And these Jews are asking for a sign, and Jesus does not give them one of these signs. He gives them the greatest sign, which is in the second half of the book. He tells them of his resurrection. Now, the theology, the information of why we should change what we do, why we should beware these distortions and distractions, is because of what Christ did. Christ brings something new. In John 1.14, it says that the, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among men. That we have seen the glory of the Father in Christ. Be, the only way that we have this element of uh, as a body being a temple, as individuals being a temple, is because Christ is the true temple. That He bears witness to God. That He reveals Himself. That He is the true place of worship. It is because of those truths that we must be changed. That we must seek to remove the distractions and distortions that come in here and destroy our witness and worship. That's why we're here. We've talked about this before. This is the goal that we're even setting for ourselves this year. Share the gospel with others. This is what we are called to do. So really what I want to ask you each is to evaluate yourself. Where are the areas that we have allowed distractions and distortions of our purpose to creep into our midst? Where are the distractions and distortions in your own life? We are called to have a zeal for the house of the Lord. If we are passionate about the true purpose, then we're going to deal with with these things. We began looking at examples of different things, different stories of those who have disrupted, who have distorted God's plan, and that the result of those things was that witness and worship was destroyed. I hope that's never true of our church. But there are elements that we do those things, and we need to evaluate those things and remove them so that they do not destroy our witness and worship.